Thank you, music team. Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fourth book of the Old Testament. As we move into August, I like to use the month of August to set the the heart and the theology of what will be governing our church, the, the ministry focus for the year. And as I mentioned last week, our ministry focus for this year is going to be one word, engage. We are going to be talking about engaging. And, uh, and, and it is my desire that we would, as a church, engage distinctively as Christians in all that we do. That in every sphere of our life, we would be engaging as Christians. And in fact, we've looked at, you know, as we've kind of looked at life, we've looked at it from the standpoint of engaging in three different spheres. The first sphere that we've talked about engaging is just engaging distinctively as a Christian with each other. We are in a set of relationships, family relationships, you know, maybe marriage, children, maybe your child with your parents, whatever, relationships within the church. How do we aggressively and proactively engage those distinctively as a Christian? Most of our life, spends, we spend just reacting to things that come our way. The question is, what would it be if we proactively said, I want to be distinctively a Christian in my home in those relationships, and I want to view my church distinctively as a, how a Christian would view it? How would I engage distinctively each other as a Christian, and we're going to spend this next ministry year talking about that. That'll be one of the spheres we talk about. Another sphere we'll talk about is engaging our community. God has left us here to impact others, right? You know I say this all the time. He has not left us here to hide until the rapture. He has left us here to shine the light of the hope of the gospel everywhere, and we should be engaging where we are with the gospel. We must be doing that. You know, we earlier talking about our offices, my office has a, you know, window right there on the street, and of course we're just right at right kitty corner to the courthouse, and people will stand right in front of my window on the phone talking to their attorneys sometimes before they're going into court or after whatever, and they're having these conversations and and they're living their lives, you know, 2 feet away from me. One time there was a situation with a a couple that had come out of court. Obviously things weren't going well because they were having a huge fight and it got ugly. And I thought it was going to get physical. And so I just stepped out the door of my office and made eye contact with the guy. Kind of like, hey. And uh, and then it calmed down. And I started realizing, I'm going to start praying for these people. You know, some of these people I'm seeing a lot. I'm going to start praying for them because you see... We haven't been left here just for me to write sermons all week. I've been left here to declare Christ and to have these people that are sometimes struggling with some of the biggest crises of their lives two inches away from me. I want to impact them. I want them to know the hope of Christ. We all have to be living that way, engaging our community with the gospel. We also have a third sphere. That sphere is the world. Right? We have to gauge the world. We know that. That's probably one of our strengths in terms of world missions and having a desire to see the gospel go out to the four corners of the earth. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to be focusing on that. So how are we going to do that? Each month, we're going to take one of those spheres. In September, we're going to focus on the community. In October, we're going to focus on the world. In November, we're going to focus on each other. Then we're going to cycle back, talk about the community, talk about each other, and on and on. We're just going to keep cycling with an emphasis each month. And in each one of those months, there'll be a challenge, there'll be times of training and equipping and opportunities for you to participate. And I'll unfold more of those in the weeks to come. But here's, the, here's one thing I want to share with you this week that, that I want to add, that I want to put this challenge out to you. One of the areas that we need to grow in as a church is in the area of prayer. We've got to be praying together more. So here's the challenge. Starting in September, I would like us to have a time of prayer here at 9 o'clock in the morning. If you could just, thank you, Cheryl will be there. <laughs> Pray with Cheryl, right? We want to be here at 9 o'clock Sunday morning, 20 minutes, 9 to 9.20, praying about these spheres. It's not a time just to kind of go around the room and share a grocery list of, of things. Let's actually be praying about these things together as a body. So the challenge I have is you have a couple weeks to get things in order so that you can come here Kids are welcome. Everyone's welcome. God hears all our prayers. Let's just gather and pray together Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock. So there's one of the challenges that will come out so that we will bathe all of this ministry focus in prayer. In the, in the next couple of weeks, I'll unveil some more things that we'll be doing during this next ministry year. But what I like to do in August is set the theology of it. Because everything that we do, we don't try to get it from some new book that's out there. I don't go read some new, hey, this is how you grow a church book and then start preaching it. Everything that we do, we want it to be driven from the Scriptures, right? I mean, th- that we want to say, hey, this is our truth. This is our life. This is where everything comes from. And so what I like to do is say, okay, let's just set the table of this, of this focus from the Scriptures. And so in, during this month, that's what we're focusing on. Last week we talked about wisdom And we talked about the fact that really the pursuit of wisdom is pursuing engaging because wisdom is taking the truth of God and living it out. And as we fear God and walk and live for Him, we are now beginning to walk in a way where we have the right mindset to pursue wisdom and that allows us to engage. This week we're going to look here in Deuteronomy and we are actually going to get a look at God the Father. We're going to look at the fact that God in all that He is is a God who engages. In all of the splendor and glory of God, one of the great things that God does is He takes all of His splendor and all of His glory and He uses it to engage. We know the ultimate way He did it is that He engaged the world in Christ, right? But we're going to see that today. We're going to unfold this so that we can recognize that if we are a follower of God, we are someone then who engages the world the way He does. And we're going to see that. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the fact that if we then have engaged or or if if we've seen how God has engaged us in Christ, then if we are in Christ, we are called to be a people who engage, and we're going to see that. And then we're going to see that not only are we to be a people who engage, we're to be a church that engages. So we're going to see all of that from the Scriptures. Now this morning, we're looking here in Deuteronomy. And what we are getting a picture of here is the fact that that, that our God is a God who engages. If we can catch this, then we realize something, that if we belong to God, then God created, created us to be His image bearer. And being His image bearer means we're going to engage with the same love and 
compassion that, that he engages us with. Now, if you catch that, if you can really catch this, this is the secret to living. This is the secret to actually getting through all of the ups and downs of life. You know, you realize something. If I'm just living for momentary glory or momentary pleasure, then once that glory or pleasure goes away, I have nothing, right? If I'm living for entertainment, then entertainment eventually is going to go away and I'll have nothing. If I'm living for security in, in my money or security in my marriage or security with my children or security in my job, well, anytime I have a fight with my wife, my life's going to fall apart. Anytime my kids disobey me, I'm going to be crushed. What do I want to be living for then? I want to be living for the purposes that God designed me to live. Which is to do what? To engage this world with the gospel. To live distinctively as a Christian. So then, if I have a conflict at home, I can say, okay God, I want to engage this as a Christian. Rather than saying, oh no, my life's falling apart, I can say, got a conflict, let's go solve it as a Christian would solve it, because I want to engage this conflict as a Christian. See, I'm no longer bound and locked into this world. In fact, this has really helped me understand something, a phrase, we're going to put it up every week, it's really a phrase of just living life, and, and it's this, the key to life is to understand that God made us who we are, placed us where we are, so that we might make who He is known in and through the way He gifted us. He made you. He placed you right here. He's given you a certain set of gifts. And now He says, go make the name of My Son known to the world. Through that. That means if you're an introvert, it might mean you're only going to make it known to one person. If you're an extrovert, it might be to 5,000 people. It doesn't matter. Do it in the way He gifted you. That's the key right there. Now, in order to do this, we've got to look at Deuteronomy because in Deuteronomy, we are going to get a picture of God that is incredible. And, uh, and so what I want to do is just set the table for the text and then I will explain that strange outline in your bulletin. And no, it's not sideways or backwards. It's intended to look that way. So, But first, let's just set the table here for Deuteronomy so that you can see who God is See how he engages and then find the fact that that's where our life meaning and satisfaction will come. First of all, Deuteronomy. Let's just do a little background on this before we get into it. Deuteronomy simply means this. The name Deuteronomy means second law. Second law, that's what it means. And, and Deuteronomy is basically Mo, Moses telling those who are going into the promised land what God expects of them. Now, these people that are going into the promised land, they were children when they left Egypt. You know the, the situation, right? A bunch of people are in Egypt, they have children. God delivers them out of Egypt. God gives them His law, tells them to go take the land. Those people get up to the land. What happens? They say, God, you can't give us this land. These guys are, are too dangerous. There's no way that you could overcome them. And God says, how could you not trust me? After all I've done... That's it. You guys needed to die, and it's going to be your children who are going to go into the land. So now all these children are raised in the desert, waiting for their parents and grandparents to die. Once they have all died off, now these children are adults, and they're about ready to go into the promised land. And Moses says, okay, there's some things you need to know. In fact, there's three things you need to remember as you go into the promised land. First of all, you need to remember the nature of God. 
You need to know who He is. Everything that happens is going to flow out of the nature of God. So remember the nature of God. Why? Because if you know who God is, you will walk by faith. You will never doubt Him. Remember the nature of God. Second thing He tells them, remember the law of God. Our God is a God of truth. And when you walk, you have to be people of truth. And so remember the law of God. And then the third thing he tells them, remember the mistake of your parents. I don't want you going astray, basically Moses is saying. So I'm going to remind you of all of the failures of your parents. I'm going to show you who God is. I'm going to show you what his truth says. And then I'm going to remind you of how your parents said no. So that you won't make their mistake. That's Deuteronomy. That's how it flows. Hence the name Deuteronomy. Second law. Second time Moses is explaining this truth, but he's explaining it to, the, to, to those who were children when their parents heard it the first time. Now, where we're at in chapter 10, just to set a little context, if you actually go back to chapter 9, you can look and see Moses is reminding them in chapter 9 of when their parents built the golden calf. You remember the situation. They were... Brought out, they brought into the desert. Moses goes up this mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God. And there's all this smoke and fire and all this stuff that's going on. And Moses goes up there. The people are terrified. And he's up there for a long time. Don't know how long long is, but, but I'm under the impression it's long enough for a bunch of people to melt down jewelry and make a golden calf, which would take a while, I would think, right? So, so, so he's up there for quite a while. He's, he, he's up there. The people are like, we have no leader. We have nothing. I can't imagine what it'd be like to be out in the desert and you're kind of just a million people hanging out. And so they're like, we got to worship something. We don't have Moses. We don't have any leadership. We were just in this place where they had idols. Maybe what we should do is make an idol for Jehovah. I think that's what they were doing. That The God who delivered them, they were going to put them in idol form. And following the traditions of what they were raised in, in... Uh, in Egypt. And so they get all this gold, they burn it down, make an idol. Moses comes down, sees the people worshiping the idol. He is livid. I can't imagine this moment. Takes the Ten Commandments, which would be pretty, like that miracle of getting the Ten Commandments from God would be huge, right? Like, you'd, and they got to climb down a mountain carrying these things. Could you imagine how much work that would be? He'd been probably protecting these, these, uh, stones as he's coming down the mountain. And he sees the idol. He's just been, in, in essence, face-to-face with God. So the heresy of this moment would be huge. And he takes the stones, and what does he do? He crashes them on the idol. And he's just like, oh, I cannot believe this. So now what does he have to do? Climb the mountain again, cut out more stones, and God's got to write the Ten Commandments a second time. When Moses is making his way down, the mountain, right before he goes down. God says, this is what I want you to tell the people. And then he proceeds to tell them what to tell the people. That's what chapter 10 is. Now let me kind of put this in a a little bit of like a relational context or, or historical context. So Moses is coming down. Moses has this message for the people. He tells the message to the people. The people get up to the promised land and they don't believe the message. 
So now in Deuteronomy, here's if I were to kind of put it in the, uh, the Steve paraphrase, Moses is saying this. He's saying, okay, you know, your parents, they disobeyed. And I had to crash the, the Ten Commandments. I had to go back up the mountain again, get them again. And then this is what God told me to tell your parents before they entered the promised land. And now I'm going to tell it to you because you're about ready to enter the promised land. That's chapter 10. Got it? So this is the message. Now in this message, if you were to look, we're going to look today just really the whole of this section that we're going to be looking at here is in, uh, that we'll be looking at is 10, 12 through the end of the chapter. But we're going to really zero down on 14 through 19 in a minute here. But, but, but really this, starting in, in verse 12, gives us the heart of this message. And if we were to start at Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, we would notice something. That there's bookends. As you know, we've studied the scriptures here together before. Sometimes when you're looking at something, you can see the bookends. How a thought begins and how a thought ends. And there's these bookends that I want to show to you. And then we're going to jump into the middle to that chart that's in your outline. We're going to jump into the middle of the gut of the message. But the bookends are basically there's an introduction to the sermon. And there's a conclusion to the sermon. And then there's a body to this sermon. Now let's look at the introduction together. Look at verse 12. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. So you can imagine these people. They've been raised in the desert. They had to witness their parents die and their grandparents die. They had to witness all this. They grew up seeing all these incredible things from snakes coming and killing them off to the ground opening up and thousands dying. I mean, these kids have witnessed a lot. And he's saying, now, now, before all of that happened, God told your parents this. And I am, and Moses is saying, and I am telling you this. What does God want from you? We saw this last week. He wants you to fear Him. That means His voice means more than any other voice in your life. His voice means more than your fears. His voice means more than your insecurities. His voice means more than your worries. His voice means more than your desire. His voice means everything. Fear Him. And follow Him. And serve Him. With all that you have. And all that God says, as strange and as weird as it could be as it sounds sometimes, is for your good. It's for your good. That's the introduction. Now let's look at the conclusion of the sermon. Okay? So so twelve and thirteen gives us this introduction. Now, then starting in fourteen, you get the body of the sermon, fourteen through nineteen, and then Here's the conclusion. You shall fear the Lord your God, verse 20. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. By His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. He has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. He's saying, what's He saying? I'm going to end where I began. Fear Him. Serve Him. Live for Him. Remember all that He's done for you. 
as you look out and see the sea of millions of people around you, realize this, it started with just 70 people. And God multiplied you into this vast nation. God does miraculous things. And so the application should always be for us, God, I want to fear you. Because this message, as we're going to see, didn't end with Israel. It was intended to be carried all the way through. The whole point of God engaging in Christ is so that we could actually do this from our heart. This could be a way of life for us. Now that all just sets the table. Let's now look at this sermon. Let's look at the body of truth that's here that should lead us to the conclusion, fear Him, serve Him, love Him, live for Him. And let's look at the nut of what was said to him. Now, when I was studying this passage, I noticed a pattern. The pattern that I noticed is that Moses in verse 14 gives us a, 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 a picture of his nature. And then in verse 15, he gives us the heart of God. And then in verse 16, he gives us the response of the people. And you know what Moses does again? And then in verse 17, he gives us the nature of God. In verse 18, he gives us the heart of God. And then... In verse 19, he gives us the response to the people. So I saw this pattern emerge. And I thought it would be good for us for you to see that pattern. Because the point of of me even being in this passage today is that I want to show you God. I want to show you how great he is. I want to show you how God engages with what he has and what that should mean for our life as Christians today. So we're going to look at this. and, And I hope that it It widens your view of God, widens your view of your purpose in life, and gives you uh, the heart uh, of God that we might engage like our Father does. So let's look here. Let's look at verse 14. Notice what it says. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. So here's what he's saying. Behold, here is your God. Notice this, how beautiful this is. Now, there are, there, are, there are a few things that are said. There's five things, basically, that are said in this text here. Let's look at these five things. First, notice that he says, Behold to the Lord your God. God identifies with us. God is not a distant God. I could imagine these, them coming from Egypt where, where, where religion to them was distant, right? You don't have a relationship with a piece of gold. That piece of gold doesn't say, I belong to you. That piece of gold is distant from you. But he's saying, listen, God identifies. He's your God. You belong to him. He belongs to you. You are in a relationship. God is not just something you believe in. God is someone that we live for and love. God is not distant. But, notice, he's our Lord. We follow him. We follow him. This is why, you know, my little pet peeve, I don't like the phrase, I asked Jesus into my heart. I don't like it because I don't like the mindset behind it. I asked Jesus into my heart. Man, I'm not asking Jesus into my heart. I'm saying, Jesus, I want a new heart. i got to follow you. Change me so that I would be your servant. Rather than I'm adding you to my life, man, I want you to take over my life. I want all things new. I don't need you added in my life, man. I need a life transformation. We follow him. He's our Lord. But notice what else he says. God owns the sky, the planets, and the spiritual world. That's all he's trying to say. The whole heavens and even that heaven that's beyond the heavens, God owns. 
And then he says, God owns the entire earth and all of creation. In essence, it's God's world. He owns it all. Now think about that. He owns the world. Now here's the question. The God who owns everything, everything you can see and everything you can't see, what does he do with his wealth? What does God do with his wealth? There's the question. That brings us now to verse 15. The heart of God. Yet, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. And chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day. What's the heart of God? God, who owns everything, doesn't take all that wealth and bury himself. Think about what rich people do today. If if suddenly I could snap my fingers and you'd become the richest person in the world today, would it not be tempting to build a mansion where no one could get to you? Because you don't want people asking you for money all the time. And you'd have a long driveway with a big fence at the end. And you'd hide your address. And you'd hide your phone number. And you'd hide your email address. You want no one finding you. That's what earthly wealth does to humans. It distanced themselves from humans, right? God owns everything. What does he do with his wealth? He loves people. In fact, notice what he says. There's three things that I've picked out here. The God who owns all creation has set his heart to love his children. That's what he's saying. He's saying a lot of words there, but he's saying he chose to love you. Not only that, the God who owns all of creation has chosen more than one generation. He, isn't just, he didn't just chose, choose to love Abraham and that was it. He didn't just choose to love Isaac and that was it. Jacob, all the way down to you is what he's saying. This love is transgenerational. God who owns the world has chosen to love. And then, this third thing, which might seem a little distant in here, but I'll show it to you. The God who owns all creation seeks to elevate His children. Why? He says, you, above all the peoples. The image He's getting is, you're about ready to enter the promised land, and I'm about ready to bless you in ways that are going to blow you away. This is what I do. I elevate you. I, I have taken all of my wealth, and you know what I'm doing with my wealth? I'm going to bless you with it. That's what he's saying. So these people, these parents heard this, and now their children heard it. God the Father saying, I own the world, and I want to bless you with what I have. Why? Because I love you. That's who I am. So, what is the response of the people then? Look at verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. If you have no clue what that means, I am not the one to explain it to you. I will let someone else explain it to you. If you know what that means, the picture there is graphic, right? But it's graphic for a reason. What he's saying is you've got this flesh in your heart. And you know what your flesh is making you do? Live for yourself. So he says, I don't want you to live for yourself. In fact, he tells them three things in this. He says, first, I want you to deal with your sin. Deal with it. You see, our sin does not make us say, all that I have I want to use to love others. Our flesh says, all that I have I want to use for myself and with my extra I'll love others. 
That's what our flesh does. Our flesh is more concerned about our flesh than others. And so he says, you guys are stubborn, man. You guys, you guys have, you know, you could just read through all that they did. Just read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and see all that they did. And how they were so self-centered, self-absorbed, thinking about only themselves. And he's saying, listen, do you realize God, with all that he has, focuses his heart on loving others. You, with all that you have, you focus your heart on yourself and you are stubborn and you resist me. Stop it. That's what God is saying. That's what God is saying. That's the response of the people. Now, it doesn't stop there. Now, he cycles back now again to the nature of God. He cycles back to the nature of God again. Look at verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. So in the first element of the nature of God, He owns everything. He has all the wealth. In the second nature of God, you know what he says? He has all the power. He's got all the money, to put it in human terms, and he's got all the power. This is who God is. Notice this description. God is the God. There's four things here. God is the God over all gods and kings. There is no one above God. They wanted to reduce him down to a calf, a golden calf. He's above that. You can't reduce God down to a stone or a golden calf. He's above all the kings. He has all power. Everyone serves him is what he's saying. There's no one above God. And then he says God possesses all the glory and power. Right? He's great. He's mighty. He's awesome. He has it all. There's no one better. And then he says God cannot be bought off like the other gods. Think about this. You just go to any kind of pantheistic religion in the world. You'd have this. You'd say, okay... I'm about ready to sign, go, go into a business dealing with someone. And I need to get the blessing of my God on that business dealing. So I'm going to go take my watch and I'm going to present it down to this God. And when I lay it down at the feet of this God, I give it to him so that that God would then give me his blessing so my business dealing will work. You know what they call that on the streets? A bribe. If you don't give me the watch, I'm not giving you my blessing. You say, that's not God. God doesn't take bribes. When we worship Him, we're not worshiping Him to get His blessing. God is not bought off, is what He's saying. He cannot be bought off like the other gods. Our offerings are for worship. We worship Him because He blesses us. He's saying he is all-powerful, but he's not like the God who doesn't withhold the blessing because you didn't bring the right grain. He blesses you, and so I offer him my life. Okay, that's what he's saying. So, there's the nature of God. Now, what's the heart of God? The God who has all the power in the world, what does he do with it? Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. The one who has all the power in the world uses his power to serve people. And to serve people who can't serve themselves. When you see the widow, the orphan, you're seeing somebody without a father. In that culture, man, a woman 
without a husband, had nothing. No one to defend her. No one to provide for her. You say, you know what God does? He sees that situation. He doesn't say, well, she better get married. He says, I'm going to take care of her. And that sojourner, that person who's just wandering in, he doesn't have a home. Maybe he's traveling. He's in another country. Someone who's lost. Someone who's moved. Someone who's, who doesn't have. He says, that's the one I look for. The God who has all of the power uses his power to care for those who need help. I think if, if, if Moses were alive today, he would sit outside, he'd sit in my office, and he'd be yelling at us at a church saying, God the Father cares about these people who have nothing, who have walked out of the courthouse and they've lost everything. They're at rock bottom. God the Father uses His power to lift those people up. That's what he's saying. That's who God is. That's His nature. That's His heart. So what is the response? So so what does God do? Three things. Make sure I don't want to lose those. God pursues justice for those who are without support. God shows compassion to the one who's a stranger. And God provides for those who have nothing. So he uses his power that way. So what's the response of the people? Verse 19, do you see it? Simple, it's what you would expect. Love the sojourner, therefore. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You knew what it was like to not be in your homeland. You knew what it was like to be disconnected. You knew what it was like to not have. And he's saying, that's the stuff that should get you up in the morning. So when God is telling you, when you go into the promised land, I don't want you going into the promised land thinking to yourself, great, we finally have a home. I finally have the vineyard I wanted. I finally have the milk and the honey that I need. Finally have the cattle. We've arrived. The blessings of God, this is what I think God is telling Moses to tell the people, The blessings that God are about about to bestow on you is not to bring you home, but to give you stuff to give away. If you view the blessings of God as like, finally we've arrived, you're missing it. That's what he's saying. You're missing the heart of God. That isn't God. So he says, love the sojourner. We must show love to the one who's outside our culture. We must provide for those who have a need. We must remember that God is the one who's given us all that we have. I'm going to ask you to to, to fill this word in. We were created in the blank of God. We were created in the image of God, right? We just saw who God is. This is what Moses is trying to get the hearts of these people. You're about ready to get a lot of wealth. And you're about ready to get a lot of power. Here's the question. What will you do with it? Will you be an image bearer of God? Or will you be stubborn and rebellious? This is, I believe, the, the question being posed to the Israelites. I thought about it this way. If I were given a billion dollars today, what would be the first thing I would buy? 
I mean, honestly, yeah, you know, let's go around and share it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just teasing. What would be the first thing you'd buy if you had a billion dollars? What would be the first five things you'd buy if you had a billion dollars? It's interesting to just think about that question. If I gave you one year off of work with, 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 with pay, a year off of work with pay, what would you do with the 12 months? But these are the questions, I think, that I was asking myself. If I was president of the United States, what laws would I pass? Or try to pass? You see, the question is this. He's saying, our God has all the power in the world, he own, and he has all the wealth in the world. He owns everything, and he has all the power. You know what he does with his wealth? He loves people. You know what he does with his power? He lifts people up. Quit being so selfish. Start loving people. When you go into the land, that's the message. Now, the question is this. Does that apply to us? You might say, Steve, this is an Old Testament passage doesn't apply to us. This is just them going into the land. So the question is, does that heart of Deuteronomy 10 transfer today? There's the question. Well, we think about it. We say, okay, God is a God of engagement. We saw how he engaged it. He, he chose these people. He loved these people. He put them in a promised land. He blessed them. He gave them all this stuff. But he didn't stop engaging there, right? He protected them. He guided them. He, he gave them everything. And, and, and then eventually God engaged ultimately how? In Jesus, right? He came himself to this world. And he said, okay, I am going to take all of the consequences of your sin upon myself. And I'll endure all of it for you. Why? Because I want to love you and not have you face my wrath. And I want to provide for you by giving you life and lifting you out of the hole you could have never got out of yourself. I want to ultimately engage you. And now, when you trust in Christ, you become part of God. And what do you think is going to happen? Well, Paul tells us exactly the same exact ethic applies to us in the church as it did to Israel when they're in the promised land. Just listen as I read Romans 13, starting at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. He's referring to Christ, he's come. The fullness has come is what he's saying, this is it, right? We're not walking around in this slumber anymore. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness. Right? Circumcise the foreskins of your heart is what he's saying. Cast off the workness, the works of darkness. And put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in the orgies or drunkenness or sexual immorality. Right? That's, that's the ultimate expression of selfish living. And sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Right? All just expressions of selfishness. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The ultimate engagement of God. And make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is not just a statement saying stop lusting. This is a statement that's saying, listen, lust is driven by self-centered life. And if you want to eliminate that, you start saying, God, give me a heart to love others. 
Quit making me consumed with me and start making me consumed with your eyes for this world. Show me your compassion. This is the heart of God. This is why we're focusing on this. I don't see this as just, this is a good strategy to grow a church. I see this as that this is what it means to be a Christian. And if we miss this, we miss everything. Because that was the message from the New Testament, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If you miss this, you've missed it all. So, let's wrap it up. How do we conclude this? How do I apply this passage? Kind of four things. These are my four things. Hopefully you have your own four or five things that maybe the Spirit of God has hit you with and share those with others. But I'll share with you what the Lord did in my heart from this passage. The first thing, personally, that hit me was I've got to look to Jesus to be my life. And I don't mean that in some trite sort of way. What I mean is this. If Jesus is the ultimate engagement of the heart of God to love and provide and lift people up, then I need to be saying, Jesus, conform my heart to your heart. That's why I was glad to look out and why I've been glad to be in those offices there because as I sit there at my desk and I see these people walking by, it started with just the fact that, boy, I need shades because there's a lot of people walking by and it's distracting me, right? That's, that's a bunch of window shades in there because I originally got them because the people were distracting me because I couldn't write my sermons with everybody walking by. I kept going, who's out there? Who's out there? And then... Over time, it's changing. And I'm beginning to see somebody in the midst of a painful divorce or somebody in the midst of losing their house or somebody who's in the midst of a horrible consequence to one night of sin and they got caught. And they're standing there wondering if they're going to go to prison. And suddenly my heart is saying, wait a minute. They need hope. They need the gospel. God, conform my heart. Change them from being a distraction to being the, the, the people that, I, that you have put in my life to talk to. Change my heart. Conform me so that I'm not just living each day for my own desires, but for your desires. Second thing that hit me, confess your self-centered lifestyle to God. Confess it, the fact that, yes, the window shades went up because the people were a distraction. I was only thinking of myself. And these are the areas where I I don't want to engage. I want to confess that. Three, have honest conversations with your family or friends about what you live for to get out in the open ways to live, uh, to get out in the open the ways that you live for yourself. The idea is that we're putting it out there. Let's just start saying, we're living, you know, our home, our family, we're just living for ourselves. God didn't live us here. That's not the heart of God. God takes all his power and all his wealth to love and lift people up. And we're taking all our power and all our wealth and putting it into our entertainment. We've got to stop doing that. Let's talk about that. And fourthly, ask God to fill you with compassion and love for others. Those Those are my four. I'm not telling you they have to be your four. I just wanted to share that with you personally and, and, and maybe God has moved in you in other ways and share them with others. But, but the heart of it is this. We engage because God did first. And we belong to Him. And the greatest joy in life 
is to live for the purposes that he created us. Not for the purposes that we want to live for. There's no, no ultimate joy in that. So why don't we pray for that now? Would you just bow your head and join me in prayer? Your nature is incredible, God. You, you are the God who owns everything. And you possess all the power in the world. You've taken all that you own and have used it to love others. You've taken all of your power and you've used it to lift people up. Lord, we take all that we own and we use it for ourselves. And we take all of our power and we use it to protect ourselves. That's what our flesh does. You know that about us. I'm grateful for Jesus who is so patient. I'm grateful for your word. You you wrote these instructions because you know where our flesh wants to go. But I thank you for Christ who's come into this world, changed our lives and shaped us and can give us a new heart and can change our desires. And Lord, may we hear this message of your word and may it change us that we might be people who engage Lord, I think of the people that we are all around that don't have hope. God, how wretched it is of us to say, I don't want to give that hope away because we're afraid. It's too risky or whatever. Lord, you own all of creation. We are connected to the power of the universe. There's nothing to risk. Lord, just change our hearts. Allow us to put aside the flesh that we might live for you. Lord, may who you are change us that we might be your image bearers in this world. In Christ's name.